Good to see y'all this morning. Thank you to uh, Sherry and Christy for your faithfulness and leading us in, in music and worship. This morning we had uh, Justice's birthday party. Well, just our me, you know, Carrie, the kids, and uh, my youngest sister, Caitlin's here with us this morning, so she joined us. And uh, he was, you know, opening presents, and he got, you know, a music thing, and he got a fire truck, and but it always makes me smile when I see my kids enjoying toys that I played with as a kid. Um, you know, Justice has one of my trucks that I, I had whenever I was a, a little kid, and he takes it and he just, you know, rooms all around the house, and, uh, you know, he makes excellent uh, truck noises for a two-year-old, in my opinion. Um, but it just it makes me smile. It makes me smile. Edwin used to uh, play with, uh, you know, the, the old, like from the 80s, the My Buddy companions or dolls that they were supposed to be called. So, yeah, I played with dolls when I was little, I guess, but I turned out okay, I think. Um, and, and, and Emma Kate, uh, I'm pretty sure has had tea with, with the My Buddy doll a time or two with her little tea, tea set. And it just warms your heart. You know, it creates this, this good feeling to see the connection. You know, to make that nostalgic connection with, with those days in, in the present day. And we humans were like that. We, we like that connection. When, when, when Kara and I were, when we, when we first met, uh, we discovered that we used to only live a couple hours from each other. And that growing up, my family would travel across from uh, the west side of the state the east side of the state to visit my grandparents and we travel across 36 and uh you know we just neat that the road we traveled to get there was a road that she traveled on regularly and it was like oh you know we could have passed each other and and you know but well, you know what if we you know stopped at the same gas station or whatever you know it's like we, we we like that connection as human beings we we kind of thrives on it you know and that that connection kind of bolstered um that bond that had been developing we're a sentimental species. We, we use these things, these connections, um, and it, it makes us feel more confident uh, in the present. It makes us more at peace. Uh, and, and it makes us um, confident about the future. It puts us kind of at ease. Like, you know, things do play out and, and, and things do connect and overlap together. Well, in a way, that's what Matthew is going to be doing this morning. And it's in his second chapter. Now, albeit, it's a strange situation to use for those purposes. It's a jealous, wicked king who is a usurper. He's seeking to kill the new, rightful, infant king. But nonetheless, Matthew uses that to make connections. But these connections aren't merely for the purposes of just happenstance or circumstance or sentiment. It's not for sentimentality. He's making these connections for historical and theological purposes. That's showing the divine plan, the divine plan of God in fulfillment. So let's read Matthew chapter 2. Uh, and, and we're going to read it in its entirety, and then I'll explain to you what I mean. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, 
Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was greatly troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And behold, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring word to me, that I too may come and worship him. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time when he ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Excuse me. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child with his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in the city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray and ask God to teach us this morning through his word. Father, Lord, we come and ask you to teach us through your word this morning. Lord, help us to understand what you're saying through your disciple Matthew. Lord, give us understanding and use that understanding to enlarge our hearts for you this morning. Amen. Last week we looked at Herod as the false king of Israel and compared him to the true king of Israel, Jesus. We also talked about the faith and diligence of the Magi 
when we compare that to the apathy and contentment of the people with the status quo. So this week, we're going to see Jesus as God's true son, Jesus the Nazarene. Now I opened talking about nostalgic connections and how Matthew is using a type of that to um, get us to connect Christ with the Old Testament, with Old Testament theology. And you may not have seen that in what I just read. And that's okay. I aim to fix that this morning. The reason most of us don't see the connections that Matthew's making between Christ, the story that he's giving us, and Old Testament prophecy um, is because we are unfamiliar with it. And we just don't understand it. We don't understand the Old Testament like Matthew's readers would have understood it. We aren't as familiar with it as they are. So it takes a little bit more work, a little bit more study to see the connections that Matthew's trying to make. So we're going to, we're going to um, focus on the three fulfillment references found in verses 13 through 23. First is Jesus as God's true son. This reference is found at the end of verse 15. So Matthew has just told us um, that God told Joseph through a dream to take Mary and Jesus and flee to Egypt because Herod was going to search for Jesus to kill him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. This is quoted from the prophet Hosea, one of the more unwell-known prophets of the Old Testament. He's known as a minor prophet. And it is in reference to God calling his people Israel out of slavery from Egypt. But there is something different about it. The quote is not, I've called my people out of Egypt. The quote is, I called my son. We fail to see in the Old Testament that God talks about the nation of Israel as his son not just his people. There are many uh, motifs or many um, analogies or phrases used that, that God uses to talk about his people. He talks about his people as his son, as his children, as his people, um, as his bride. And this is focused on Israel as God's son. Listen to this. In Exodus, when God is calling Moses to go to Egypt and say, hey, I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. This is what the Lord tells Moses to tell Pharaoh. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 9, the Lord says, I am a father to Israel. And Ephraim, another word for Israel in this instance, Ephraim is my firstborn. Now to be the firstborn in ancient Israel 
meant that you received a double portion. You had a special purpose in the house of your father, and that means you had a greater responsibility. God gave Israel the oracles. He gave them the law. He gave them the prophets. He made them and called them to be a nation of priests. For what? What was their purpose? Their purpose was that they would show the world, all the other nations, the glory and power of Yahweh. That all other nations would see and know that Yahweh was God. And this is this is why God saved Israel from slavery in Egypt. Time and time again in Exodus, he says, um, I'm doing this so that you may know that I am the Lord God, that I am Yahweh God. So what Matthew is doing here, he is making it known that Jesus is God's true son. He's transferring Israel's sonship to Christ. He's saying Jesus is now fulfilling the sonship that God called Israel. He's picking up the mantle as God's son, and he's going to accomplish what Israel failed to do as God's son. Namely, obey God and fulfill his purposes. Jesus will glorify God where Israel failed. He will make God's name known among the nation, and he will provide the way of salvation for all people to be saved. Now you may think, Brian, that's a bit of a stretch. How did you get all of that from this one little verse that's tucked away in the Old Testament somewhere? Well, let's look at the quote in context. Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away and kept sacrificing to Baal, the false god of the land, and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by the arms, but they did not know that it was I who healed them. I led them so they did not know that it was I who healed them, meaning they had forgotten that I was the one who brought them out of Egypt. I brought them out of Egypt. I took care of them. I provided for them, and they went after other gods. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria will be their king because they have refused to return to me. I did all this for Israel. He was my son. I took him, I saved him, I redeemed him, I brought him out of slavery, I gave him his own land. I fed him, I clothed him, I walked with him, I taught him, and he refused to obey me. So I'm not gonna send him back to Egypt. I've already saved them from Egypt, but I'm gonna send them to Assyria. This passage, the Lord was remembering what he did. Israel rejected God as his father. And so they rejected their sonship. 
So God sent them into exile. He banned them from the land. But now a new son has arrived. God's only begotten son. And when he is called out of Egypt, he will not reject his father. He will not turn from his ways, but he will be obedient. God will have no reason to send him away into exile. When God calls his son Jesus back from Egypt, he will be obedient even unto death. If we know the whole story, the storyline gets even better. Because Jesus, as the Redeemer of Israel, redeems the nation Israel from their failure as God's son. By being an offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Messiah, by being an Israelite himself, he fulfills Israel's purpose. He redeems the people of Israel by accomplishing God's plan. He offers that sonship back to Israel if or when they put their faith in him and accept him as their Messiah. But again, it gets even better. Not only does Jesus redeem Israel, not only does he offer Israel their sonship back, he offers his sonship to us. He transfers his place as God's son to us when we receive him, when we accept him, when we believe in his name, when we repent of our sin and follow him as savior. He becomes our brother and we become fellow heirs of God with him. Galatians chapter four, the apostle Paul writes, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Are you a son or daughter of God? Has he called you his own? Has he made you his own? Does he pour out his love on you as his child? Have you laid claim of your adoption papers or did you leave them at the courthouse? Meaning, do you value your adoption as a son or daughter of God? Or do you, is it just a fact that you point out when it's convenient? Do you live your life as a child of God? Loving and living in the reality that he has adopted you. He transferred you out of the corrupt, dark, loveless orphan house of this world and brought you into his home, into his loving house that's full of light, full of life, full of joy. Jesus bought your adoption. He came here as the true only begotten son of God to bring us to his father as adopted sons and daughters of the Father God King. I'll ask you again, 
Are you a son or daughter of God? The next Old Testament passage Matthew refers to comes after the horrific scene where Herod massacres all the boys in the region that were under two years old. He connects the mourning of this evil act with a passage from Jeremiah. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This may seem strange to Western ears, unfamiliar with the culture of um, Eastern cultures. But one of the main differences between Eastern cultures and Western cultures is that in Western cultures, we are much more reserved in the expressions of our emotions. We kind of view emotions as a lesser faculty of a human being, and we, we elevate the intellectual or, or logical faculties of the human being. When we're in pain or mourning, or even if we have moments of great joy or happiness, we're uncomfortable giving full expression sometimes even in the comforts of our own homes, but especially when we're out in public. But in the Eastern cultures, to not give full expression to your emotions was to actually devalue the circumstances around you. So if someone gave you a gift, you were exuberant to show appreciation. If someone passed or someone was diagnosed with sickness, you didn't hold anything back. You let it all come out because of the value of the person. As far as the quote from Jeremiah 31 is concerned, it refers back to Israel's exile again. The exile is a major historical event for the Jews, and therefore for Matthew, because he's writing to the Jews. It is through the exile and because of the exile that Israel ceased to be a nation. They would not be a nation again for over 2,000 years. When Israel went into exile, because of their disobedience to God. The line of kings was cut off. The tree of Jesse, David's father, was chopped down and only a stump remained. The people were cast out of God's promised land. And when they returned, they did not return as conquerors, as priest kings, but as a broken, humbled people. They would never again regain their glory as God's chosen people. They would never fulfill that aspect of God's leadership for them. To bring all the nations to themselves. To show them the glory of the Father, the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth. This passage refers to Rachel. She was considered the mother of the nation of Israel. She was buried in the land of Ramah, close to Jerusalem and Bethlehem. And it depicts her crying out in her grave because her children are being taken away, exiled from their land, never to return again in the same capacity. When they did return, even at the hand of the Lord, it was not as leaders or representatives, but it was out of the pity of a foreign king. 
And ultimately, it was the compassion of the Lord that brought him back to Israel. So why does Matthew cite this verse here? What is the connection? The tears of the mothers of Bethlehem bring Rachel's figurative tears full circle. The exile is truly over as the Messiah has come and is introducing a new covenant that Jeremiah promised. The same chapter that has the tears of Rachel has in it the the promise of a new covenant that is going to bring be ushered in by the Messiah. So so listen to this again. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and loud weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. The very next verse. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Later in the same chapter, the Lord goes on to say this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer shall each person teach his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Matthew is connecting the mourning of the mothers in Bethlehem with the tears of the exile and pointing forward, all mourning forward, to the hope that the new covenant offers. All the new covenant is ushered in, made possible by the Messiah who now has arrived on the scene, who is now the cause for the mourning of the mothers in Bethlehem. But keep your eyes from weeping. Keep your voice from crying. Because one day, there's going to be a time when I will be your God and you will be my people. There are a lot of things in life, in this world that happen to us, that cause reason, that are cause for reason to mourn. I know many of you had, or currently do have, so many reasons to mourn. God is not saying to you, don't cry. God is not saying to you, don't mourn. God is not saying to you, don't feel sad. The prophet Isaiah tells us about our Savior. He said, he was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He's borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. So turn to him for comfort. 
he tells us, blessed are they who mourn, for for they shall be comforted. Hope in God. Hope also in me. So I, as your pastor, encourage you. Turn to the Lord, to the ones who bears our burdens, who knows our hurts, who feels our pain. Turn to him. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Is it a pain from yesterday? Turn to him. Turn to him. Give it to him. Let him have it. Is it a pain from 20 years ago? He's still able to carry it for you. He's still there waiting for you to turn to him and hope in him. Do you you still suffer from a childhood wound? Something you've been carrying with you for decades. Did you know that he can heal you even from that? He would heal, heal you from it today if you would turn to him, if you would go to him and hope and trust. He can and will make you whole again. He is capable. That's what he does. He was acquainted with grief and sorrows because he is the divine healer. He loves. He heals. He restores. He makes new. You don't have to live in a continual state of mourning when you have him as your savior. He makes all things new. And he can make you new. Finally, we have Christ and his family settling down in a small town that no one's ever heard of. In a region that nobody wants to visit. A town called Nazareth in Galilee. Now, one point of interest is that Jesus probably would have been somewhere between the ages of four to six at this point. I mean, the time of his birth, the Magi saw the star, they traveled to Jerusalem. Um, Herod asked them, you know, when did you see the star? It was about two years ago. So that's why he killed all the boys two and under. And then his family fleed to Egypt and waited for Herod to die. Then they came back and then they traveled all the way north to Galilee. So there was some time that passed. What prompted Joseph was not necessarily a divine prompt. The Lord prompted to come back to Israel. But when he learned that Herod's most wicked, cruel son was now reigning in his place, he thought twice about going back to Bethlehem. Instead, he goes to Bethlehem. Or, excuse me, instead he goes to Nazareth. And according to Matthew, this happened so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now notice first that Matthew claims to be referencing multiple prophets, according to prophets. It's plural. But also notice there's no actual quotation marks. This isn't an exact quote. So where is Matthew getting this from? What's going on? 
The reality is, is that nowhere in the entire Old Testament does a prophet say that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. So what is Matthew talking about? Did he just make this up? Well, first, we need to understand what it meant to be from Nazareth. It was a sort of place that no one wanted to be from, not even the people who lived there. It was a nothing town, and it had nothing going for it. A small village off the beaten path, nothing to do, nowhere to go. You know how small towns are? Everybody knows everything, even things that aren't actually true. It was an unimpressive town, and everybody there couldn't wait to find their ticket out. Actually, it was known for one thing. Stupid people. Really. Let's look at two passages that talk about Nazareth in the Bible. Jesus calls Philip. Philip recognizes Jesus as the Messiah, and he goes to Nathanael. Listen to what he says. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. (laughs) Listen to, to Nathaniel's response. Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Are you sure you got the right guy? Because there's nothing good that comes out of that place. No one worth anything comes from that town. Nothing good ever came from there. It was notoriously unimpressive. Here's a story there's another story where Nazareth is used. The chief priests and the religious leaders, leaders, they despised Jesus. They hated him. They argued about him all the time. And there was one man that stood up and gave a reasonable defense for Jesus, saying, well, we can't put him on trial without any witnesses. No pun intended. Here is what the people said to him. Are you from Galilee too? Search the scriptures. There's no prophet that arises from Galilee. Meaning, in context, do you know nothing? Are you an idiot? Are you too stupid to know that nobody comes, no prophet comes from Galilee? To be from Nazareth came with the stigmatism, the stigmatism that you were an ignorant idiot of the highest order. Just keep your mouth shut and go back to where you came from. You don't know anything. You're embarrassing yourself. So Matthew is saying that the Messiah would be numbered among people like this. Where does he get that from? In Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Meaning, you don't expect anything to come from it. You see a root and dry ground, it's not going to produce anything. It's a waste. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not, meaning we didn't give him the time of day. There was no reason we would ordinarily be drawn to the Messiah. 
You know, unlike our comely photo over here, this picture, not, not only was Jesus not white, but there was no reason why you would give him a second look. He was a Near Eastern man, dark skin, dark complexion, bearded, hairy, no physical features that you would want to look at twice. He was of the ilk that we would avoid if we could. His people were the outcasts. His people were the ones whom society called stupid. The name of their town was synonymous with ignorance. Jesus was no celebrity. He had no skills to be admired. We live in a culture that holds up people who are successful. We hold them so high that we value any opinion they have, no matter how ridiculous it is. No matter whether they're an expert in that field or not. They can sing or dance or act or perform or something. So we think they know everything. And unfortunately, that concept has infiltrated the church. We've gotten caught up with Christian celebrities. We're so excited when a celebrity in the world comes to Christ. And I, I hope that it's authentic. But I don't think Christ would be the one hanging out with them. Because he was too busy hanging out with the nobodies. He was too busy hanging out with the outcasts, with the downcasts, with the beaten, with the ignorant, with the rejected. The Christian culture gets so wrapped up and excited. Jesus spent 30 to 33 years here on earth. And he was only famous for about two or three of those years before he was executed. Shows you how much popularity is worth. He was crucified like a treasonous criminal, alone. Do you know what made him famous? Do you know what drew the common person to Jesus? It wasn't that he could run really fast. It's not because he had mad balling skills. It wasn't how far he could hit or throw, jump or catch a ball. It wasn't because he had a great singing voice or was impressive on the dance floor. It wasn't because he had a bunch of money. It wasn't because he had a big house. It wasn't because he was a successful businessman and had power and wealth. What made the Messiah famous, what drew him, what drew people to him, was how well he loved them. It was his kindness. It was how he spoke to them. How he made them feel like a million dollars. He made them feel loved, important, worthwhile, special, no matter what town they came from. No matter how ignorant or stinky they were. Why do you want to be famous? I mean, if we're honest, all of us have a little bit of a fantasy in our mind about what we could do to be famous. What is it you want to be known for? How do you want your kids or grandkids, 
your friends, your coworkers to remember you by. As a church, what do we want to be that draws people in? How well are we going to love those whom Christ came to save? Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that you are a God who saves. That you're not a God who stands far off, but that you came close. So close you bled. Father, I pray that you would comfort your people. Father, I pray that you would put within us a deep desire to love others. Father, I pray that we would fully embrace our sonship or our daughterhood in you. Father, I pray that it would show. I pray that people would see it, and I pray that it would cause people to want it. Lord, I ask that you would do all of this to glorify yourself through your church. Amen. I invite you all to to respond to what you've heard through singing.